Hello, I'm Daniel Barnett and this episode of Employment Law Matters is being released on 9 November 2019. In this episode, I'll discuss the minimum notice periods required by law, when notice isn't required, how best to give notice, and can notice be withdrawn. Before I start, a quick word about reviews on iTunes. As always, thank you everybody who leaves a review. Ellie Shia H has written a really nice review. She says, I'm a first year trainee in my first seat in employment. Your podcasts have not only made my morning commute much more entertaining, but they really help to break down the legal jargon. Thank you, Ellie. And if you send an email to podcast at danielbarnett.co.uk with your details, we'll send you a copy of my book, Employee Investigations, for leaving a nice review on iTunes, something we do every week for one review picked at random. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. When giving notice, the first thing to do is look at the contract. Employment contracts will set out the notice that has to be given and subject to one caveat that will be the notice period. The caveat is the statutory minimum notice period in section 86 of the Employment Rights Act 1996. Once an employee has been employed for a month or more, an employer has to give a week's notice for each complete year of employment up to a maximum of 12 weeks. If the period set out in the employment contract is less than this, although it's very rare to see that nowadays, then the employee gets the statutory minimum. It is common for notice periods to be longer than the statutory minimum, especially for senior members of staff who are harder to replace. Longer contractual notice periods trump the statutory minimum. Remember also that employers and employees can waive their right to notice if they want. The law recognises that sometimes both parties will want the relationship to end sooner, sometimes immediately. An employee might want this if they have a new job to go to or if they're offered a payment in lieu of notice. If there's no written contract, then the employee is entitled to reasonable notice. Now, this is always at least the statutory minimum, but sometimes it's more. Things like industry norms, colleagues' notice periods, length of service, salary and seniority are all relevant to the question of what is a reasonable notice period. So reasonable notice for a junior employee might be the statutory minimum. But for a long-serving senior manager, a longer period might be standard in their field. It's always best to have clear notice provisions in employment contracts to avoid disputes. There are two situations when notice isn't required. The first is the expiry of a fixed term contract. Contracts for a fixed period end automatically at the end of that period. No formal notice in advance is required. It just ends. But, and this is really important and something people occasionally forget, the termination of a fixed term contract is still a dismissal for unfair dismissal and redundancy pay purposes. So that means if the employee has worked for two years or more, you still have to follow a fair procedure if you allow their fixed term contract to come to an end because it's deemed to be a dismissal. And if you don't follow a fair procedure, it could well be an unfair dismissal. 
The second situation where notice isn't required is the one we all know, it's gross misconduct. When an employee has committed an act of gross misconduct, that in legal terms is called a repudiatory breach of contract, and the employee can be dismissed without notice. What happens if proper notice is not given? If an employer dismisses an employee without proper notice, the employee has a claim for breach of contract, and it's called wrongful dismissal. Wrongful dismissal and unfair dismissal are two different things. Wrongful dismissal is about not giving notice. Unfair dismissal is about the procedure and the underlying fairness of the reason for the dismissal. The damages for wrongful dismissal covers the wages and other benefits that the employee would have received during their notice period. But unlike unfair dismissal, it won't cover ongoing losses. What if it's the employee who fails to give proper notice? Well, technically, they're in breach of contract. Now, an employee is only likely to do anything about it if they stand to suffer loss. For example, if it's a senior employee who's going to work for a competitor during their notice period. But it's really unusual for employers to sue in this situation. Employers can also protect their business by enforcing any restrictive covenants. Very, very occasionally, an employer might seek an injunction to stop the employee working elsewhere during the notice period, even if there aren't restrictive covenants. But that's quite a complicated claim. It's expensive to bring. And outside city financial institutions where everybody hates everybody else and there can be large sums of money involved, you don't really see those sorts of claims nowadays. Giving notice itself. The law doesn't set out the mechanics of how notice should be given, but there are three things that are best practice. Putting it in writing, clarifying dates, and making it crystal clear. I'll talk about the first two briefly and spend a few minutes on the third. Number one, putting it in writing. Make sure your contracts stipulate that notice should be in writing. Decide whether to exclude email or text or instant messaging from that description. If you're going to send notice letters by post, send a copy by email as well. This is just a, a best practice tip in case the employee claims the letter never arrived. It's always best to send a notice letter by first class post, not registered or signed for delivery, because the employee can refuse to accept the registered letter. Number two, clarify the dates. For clarity, set out the last day of employment in the letter. And remember, the day you give notice isn't counted for the purpose of calculating the end date. So if a week's notice were to be given today, Tuesday the 12th of November, it will expire on Tuesday the 19th of November, which will be the last day of work. If notice is given in months, then you use the corresponding date rule. So if you give three months notice on 12th of November, the last day of work will be 12th of February. If there's no corresponding date in the relevant month, use the last day of the month instead. So notice given on 31st of August, if there's a month's notice to be given, will expire on 30th of September because there's no 31st of September. If it's the employee who gives notice, clarify their last day at work if they haven't already done so. So tips on giving notice, number one, put it in writing, number two, clarify dates, and number three, make it crystal clear. Notice has to be clear 
and unambiguous so that both sides understand what has happened and a clear when employment will come to an end. This means that the notice has to specify the date of termination or contain facts from which that date can be ascertained. The Employment Appeal Tribunals recently looked at this in a case called East Kent Hospitals against Levy. The employee worked in the records department of a hospital. She had a poor sickness record and a difficult relationship with a colleague, and she applied for a role in the hospital's radiology department, which she was offered subject to pre-employment checks. She wrote to her manager giving one month's notice. The radiology department then retracted the job offer because of her poor absence record. She tried to retract her notice, but the employer, East Kent Hospitals, refused. Miss Levy brought a claim for unfair dismissal, but the employer said she'd resigned. Well, had she? The Employment Appeal Tribunal said the key issue was the content of her letter and what had been understood by the employer. The wording of her letter could have been noticed to terminate her employment with the trust, or it could have been notice of an intended internal transfer to radiology. And the Employment Tribunal had been correct, said the EAT, in looking objectively at what a reasonable recipient would have understood from the letter, armed with all the background information the employer had. And this included the employer's knowledge of the employee's need to work to support her family. And the EAT said the reasonable observer would not have thought Miss Levy was resigning from the trust. The letter was about her potential departure to another department within the hospital. And the manager's behaviour actually backed this up because on receiving the letter, he hadn't taken steps to recoup Miss Levy's excess holiday or fill in her termination forms. He did actually fill them in promptly after refusing her retraction. The tribunal was unimpressed with that. Miss Levy's resignation therefore wasn't clear and unambiguous and therefore wasn't valid. Can notice be withdrawn? Well, once notice has been given, it can't be withdrawn without the agreement of the other party. So an employer can refuse to accept a retraction of an employee's notice as long as it was validly given in the first place. Once valid notice has been given, it can only be shortened or extended or withdrawn by mutual consent. Likewise, an employee can refuse to accept an employer retracting notice, although there is case law which suggests a successful internal appeal against dismissal makes the original dismissal vanish as if it never happened. Are there alternatives to working out notice? If an employment relationship has soured, having an employee work out their notice can be damaging to staff morale. It can put clients and confidential information at risk. Giving a payment in lieu of notice, known as a pylon, the acronym, brings the employment contract to an immediate end. But you can only lawfully pay a pylon, payment in lieu of notice, if the employment contract expressly gives you a right to do that. If there's no pylon clause in the contract, then any employer who pays in lieu of notice is technically in breach, and it will usually, if not 
always release the employee from any restrictive covenants they would otherwise be bound by. There's nothing to stop you as an employer seeking an employee's agreement to pay in lieu of notice, but make sure you get that agreement in writing in case there's disagreement at a later date about exactly what was agreed. Bear in mind a garden leave clause can be helpful where you want to restrict what the employee can do during their notice period. If an employee is placed on garden leave, their employment continues during the notice period, but they're not required to come to work. If you want a nice piece of trivia, the phrase garden leave came to prominence are in an episode of Yes, Prime Minister in 1986. And if you want to start a Twitter storm, go on to Twitter and post, is it garden or gardening leave? People hold very, very strong views. It's garden leave, by the way. Garden leave can be useful if the employee is very senior or influential, or if access to clients or company data might be damaging to the business. Garden leave also stops the employee from working for a competitor during the notice period while making sure they're on standby to help if necessary. But you do need to have the garden leave clause in the contract. If there isn't a garden leave clause, you can cause all sorts of legal difficulties by announcing that you're putting somebody on garden leave. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like the sort of thing I do, go and have a look at www.hrinnercircle.co.uk, which is a membership club I run for smart, ambitious HR professionals. I'm Daniel Barnett, and I'll see you next week. Bye bye. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.